It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this show are now available on iTunes and Stitcher. So please subscribe and rate us. This helps others find the shows. I'm Kay Winnigal, and today I'm talking with Emma Hurd, who is the CEO of the Investor Group on Climate Change, IGCC. Emma's worked in the climate change, sustainability, public policy and finance for almost 20 years, and she's going to explain how IGCC influences institutional investors. Hi, Emma. Thanks for joining me. Hi, good to be here. Emma, the members of the investor group on climate change represent over $2 trillion in private capital, which is approximately equal to the entire total market cap of all the companies listed in the ASX Australian Stock Exchange. So it's a really huge community of Australian and New Zealand investors. How do those members benefit from membership in your organisation? It's definitely a, um, a somewhat eye-watering amount of capital when you, uh, when you tally up the funds under management from the Australian and New Zealand institutional investor community. But it's also, I guess, important to remember that a lot of that is, you know, yours and my uh, retirement savings, which is invested through our super funds and then through the various managed funds or investment options that are there as well. So sometimes I think it helps to think about it as our national retirement savings when um, tallying up the total quantum of money that's being managed to these issues. So I guess our members join IGCC because they recognise that climate change is a systemic risk to our economy. They recognise that it represents immediate and long-term financial risks to their portfolio and they want to do something about it. So really in terms of joining IGCC, what they're looking to do is to understand where investor practice is going in terms of identifying climate risks and looking at options for supporting climate solutions, how they can improve their own performance and then what they can also do in the public policy and advocacy discussion to also help support our national response to climate change. So in terms of how do they benefit, I think they benefit by doing all of that faster with better information and in collaboration with their peers across the industry in terms of looking at where practice is actually going. So what kind of impact do you expect your members have on Australia's response to climate change? Well, you know, I, I think they are institutional investors in Australia, as they are globally, are very significant players in the economy. They are shareholders in the largest companies, listed companies uh, on the ASX, as you said. These are the companies which are producing our national greenhouse gas emissions. So investors, through their holdings and through the engagement that they have with companies, uh, have the ability to influence the actions that companies are taking to reduce their emissions and to bring their strategy in line with the goals of the Paris Agreement. 
Of course, they also have the option to vote their shares and they have the option to remove their capital if they feel that the company is not adequately managing their climate change response. So I guess there's two ways to think about it. One is that they are uh, have the ability to shape the economy through their influence. But two, they also have the ability to put money into the solutions that we need to both bring down emissions, but also to increase the resilience of our, of our companies, of our infrastructure, you know, of everything from airports to electricity generators to, to commercial shopping centres, to increase their resilience to the physical effects of climate change. And then lastly, I guess, in terms of their influence, it's also the ability to take the money, like our retirement savings, and to invest it in line with our values. And so a big part of that is, is developing the kinds of investment fund products and solutions that you or I can put our money into, which is actually also being part of the solution as well. So in, in that, I think they also have the capacity to have a really big influence. So I wonder how many people actually realise that they have the power to make a difference in terms of where their super funds invest. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's really interesting. Like in Australia, we have compulsory superannuation. And so we're all kind of used to seeing that money going out of our paycheck and going into our super fund. But usually for most of us, it's not until we're about 10 to 15 years out from a retirement that we really start thinking about what our retirement savings are actually doing and where they're going. So we don't tend to think of it as being our money. So, you know, you don't tend to have that personal relationship with your super. You kind of put it in your fund, you put it in the cupboard, so to speak, and you worry about it when you get closer to retirement. But in actual fact, you do through your consumer choices, through which fund you choose to put your money with, and through which product, uh, investment product you choose to put your money into, you do have the ability, like you do with every other consumer decision that you make, to make sure that your money is acting in line with your personal values as well. And that is especially true for issues like climate. And like any other kind of consumer relationship, the more you tell the companies that you're engaging with what your concerns are, the more they will do about it. You know, a lot of us have a very disconnected or passive relationship with our super fund, but you've got to tell them what you want in order for them to know what you want and do something about it. So I would definitely encourage everyone to think about your super as your money and to talk to your fund about what you want your money to be doing. Well, that's fantastic to know not only do the fund managers have the power to make changes in the environmental space, but also the consumers. The quickest way to re-empower yourself is to think of yourself as choosing every day in 101 ways to make a difference on climate change through your decisions. As you say, one of the central aims of IGCC is to raise awareness of the potential impacts, both positive and negative, resulting from climate change to the investment industry, corporate government and community sectors. Now that we know that the optimistic case is that we managed to hold warming to just 1.5 degrees and we're already at one degree, seeing some highly visible impacts, such as increasing severity of bushfires and more recently images of homes being lost to the rising sea ocean. What are some of the less well-known impacts that rising temperatures will have on Australian businesses? Heat. Heat is the one that we don't talk about enough. Heat will impact major industries which are huge economic contributors and will do so through productivity of the workforce, through impacts on public transport infrastructure and our ability to get to work. 
in terms of the costs of doing business and electricity costs, impacts on the electricity grid. You know, in many ways, we're unfortunately all too aware of the climate change impacts of bushfires. We're, I think, becoming even more cognizant of the impact of flooding, inundation and rising sea levels. But for Australia, heat is going to be one of the biggest climate change impacts as well. Those three are all interrelated, I might add. I mean, it's not like we switch off one impact and switch on another. They all happen concurrently. But, you know, I think that's probably one area where we will see some significant impacts for business. And I'm just not sure that as many businesses are planning ahead for that as they should be. Uh, and it's also one that we're seeing already. I mean, if you think back to the to the last few summers, the last 10 years, this is a, an impact of climate change that we are already seeing and we'll see more of in, in extremes. So, you know, in that sense, I, I think heat is one of the uh, underappreciated negative impacts of climate change for Australia, as in many communities globally as well. And possibly more in Australia than anywhere else because we're already on a very hot continent. Yeah, I think in Australia, you know, it's almost a cliche. We're familiar with the extremes of uh, summer, but climate change makes every extreme more extreme. And when a place such as Australia, where we already have pretty volatile climatic conditions, uh, more than 85% of us live on the coast. Uh, A lot of our uh, most valuable economic infrastructure is in highly exposed areas as well to increased extremes. And we need to be investing a lot of both time and money in future-proofing our communities and our infrastructure to the extremes of climate change. And I'm just not sure that we're there yet. We're not there yet from a planning and coordination perspective or policy and in terms of the kinds of standards and planning codes that we need to be managing for climate change. But this is actually where investors can play a very big role because through engaging with companies, engaging with government, engaging with planning authorities, you know, investors do have significant weight and influence through managing large amounts of money and, and are able to advocate for and push for and, and sometimes push through this better coordination and planning for the future that we know we are likely to see as a result of climate change. I'd imagine for ordinary Australians, this heat impact will affect everything, you know, from the type of wine we can get locally to the food resources that we have to water resources to, as you say, transport and so forth. It virtually affects every single facet of our lives, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And there's a lot of things which take a long time to shift or to change or to adapt. And, you know, in saying that, I'm thinking of everything from, you know, cool climate grape or crop varieties where you're seeing agricultural companies already buying land in Tasmania, because the uh, existing crops that they have are not producing, you know, crops or grapes, for example, to the same quality as previously, because the average temperatures have gone up. Or you're seeing it in terms of water availability for ag producing areas, or you're seeing it in terms of um, energy efficiency and energy demands of uh, different types of infrastructure and assets. In mining communities, You're seeing it, or or remote mining communities, you're seeing it in terms of planning for workforce health and safety with some of those extreme heats and increased heat conditions as well. An organisation of 69 central banks has recently expressed its view that an orderly transition to net zero emissions will significantly lessen the economic hit from climate change. Do you agree with that? Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting in terms of what we're seeing with the role of financial regulators in the climate change debate. 
if you think investors are influential, then the regulators of, it, of the finance community are even more influential. You know, I think what what a lot of central bankers and a lot of financial regulators in countries all around the world are seeing is that climate change is fundamentally an economic risk. Failure to properly avoid the worst kinds of conditions that you'll see from higher average increased temperatures will create greater economic risks and that the smartest thing any country can do economically is to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees. And they're looking at it from a whole of economy perspective and also looking at it from the perspective of what does that mean for central bankers in their supervisory responsibilities? So what do they need to require of regulated financial entities like banks or insurers and investors? What do they need to require from companies in terms of their disclosure and their stress testing and their financial risk management? What do they need to require from the system as a whole in terms of beginning to manage down the negative impacts of climate change by avoiding climate change in the first place. So it's a really interesting development that we've seen in the last few years where central bankers have become environmentalists for the sake of the health of the economy. And not before time, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's been building for a while. Central bankers don't tend to move quickly until they've decided that something is a definitive risk and then they tend to move very quickly. So how quickly could this orderly transition take? Well, I think there's what we're seeing, even, uh, you know, from the uh, federal government's most recently released technology roadmap, is that there's no shortage of technological solutions available to deal with climate change. You know, we actually have the current capability to really drastically reduce greenhouse gas gas emissions, should we choose to. And this goes across all industry sectors. This goes across energy, which underpins the decarbonisation potential for for, almost all industries. Uh, It's at the household level. It's in transport. It's in ag. uh, It's in property. It's in, in almost every part of the economy. There are multiple opportunities for reducing emissions and reducing the likelihood of climate change. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Emma Hurd, CEO at at the Investor Group for Climate Change. So if we consider the alternative of a disorderly transition away from fossil fuels, how might that play out? Yeah, the disorderly transition is an interesting one. Basically, what it says is that the transition will happen, but it'll be ugly in that we won't do anything for a number of years or we won't move fast enough. And then it'll become very apparent that the physical effects of climate change, as in the kinds of lived experience that we have, will drive an abrupt and sudden shift, which does then have quite stark and abrupt negative implications for for companies, for industries and for particular exposed economies. Now, if you think about Australia in terms of why we don't want a disorderly transition, so we are a very carbon-intensive economy. A lot of our industries are either producers or uh, secondary users of highly emissions intensive, say, energy sources, for example, but also, you know, broader kinds of activities that we do. A lot of our wealth and prosperity comes from carbon intensive activities. If we were just to suddenly switch that all off, that's not the preferred approach that we want, because it would have a lot of negative impacts for our economy, Um, arguably negative impacts that that would be quite comparable to the kind of impacts we're seeing with, with the COVID emergency that we're in currently. 
So the preferred option is actually that we look ahead, we get smart about this and that we plan for the transition that we know needs to happen. And we, we look at how we can, you know, evolve and transition industries into new forms of economic activity, new areas of opportunity to support the low, global low carbon economy, which we know is coming, apply our skills and expertise and capitalize on the transition, not be victims of the transition. So this is kind of one of those questions of, this transition is going to happen. Do we want to be in front of it or do we want to be dragged along kicking and screaming uh, and, and have it um, put upon us rather than capitalise on the opportunities? So where do th- these investors now sit? Has, has there been a change since the start of IGCC and now with the power that these investors have in determining the direction? Yeah, look, I think... Um, There's a couple of ways to answer that question. Um, I think probably the best way to think about it is the change that has occurred is both uh, within the industry, but then also um, looking at the industry's role within the economy. So when IGCC was first founded um, 15 years ago, um, there was a very live debate across the industry about whether or not dealing with issues like climate change or other as they're often called, environment, social and governance or ESG issues, um, could be construed as a breach of your core fiduciary duty uh, as an institutional investor. And by that, it's very much your core mandate, your legal mandate for your core responsibility to your beneficiaries, so your legal responsibilities. These days, the opinion is, and there was a very active debate about whether or not climate change was a breach of fiduciary duties. These days, the debate is very much in the area of failure to manage climate change is a clear breach of your fiduciary duties because it is such a a material financial risk. So that is one shift that has happened within the industry. When it becomes apparent that failure to manage this risk presents uh, a clear breach of your fiduciary duties, then this triggers a whole series of cascading actions that even the least progressive fund has to be managing for climate change. Whereas the smart funds are the ones getting ahead of it saying, we can generate additional value for our members. We can generate better, safer returns for our members by getting ahead of this issue and by being part of the solution. So that, that's the shift that's happened internally in the, in the industry. Secondly, Because we have compulsory super in Australia, the total pool of managed funds continues to grow, um, topping out, you know, most recently at around $3 in um, assets under management. This meant that Australia and the managed funds industry in Australia is now, at last count, the fifth largest pool of managed funds in the world. So increasingly, um, Australia's retirement savings is becoming really influential in terms of global economy. So Australian investors are active investors in purchasing or constructing infrastructure, for example, in North America or in Asia or in Europe, in all parts of the world. And so increasingly have a a real role to play in driving global uh, economic outcomes as well. So both within the industry and in terms of thinking about the industry's role in the whole economy and the global economy, there's been this real shift in terms of appreciating that Uh, investors have to take a broader view of their responsibilities as active stewards of of capital in thinking through how do they invest money to to achieve the best outcomes from a broader perspective of sustainable returns for the long term for maximum benefit as well. So that's, that's kind of one way to think about the shift that's happened in the last, say, 15 years or so. 
Wow. I didn't realise that the Australian super funds were that powerful. Well, think of it this way. As Australian superannuates, we are that powerful. So mm. We, through our retirement savings, have that influence as well. That, that's very impressive. Um, well, I mean, Australia is a... We, we tend to think of ourselves as a minnow in the world, but in some ways we, we more than punch above our weight. And we do so in two ways. One, in terms of our carbon footprint, and secondly, in terms of our capacity to do something about it. Yeah. So... In terms of the super funds, Australian super is starting to slowly divest from fossil fuels and first state super has committed to a 30% reduction in emissions from the securities it owns by 2023 and Hestia is committed to 33% by 2030 and net zero by 2050. Is that is the pace fast enough or should they be going a bit faster? Well, I think we should all be going a bit faster um, to answer that question. But, I mean, those are some significant commitments that have been made by some of the biggest funds in the country. Uh, and we fully expect to see more uh, and more. What, what we're kind of seeing across the industry is that, you know, investors have been asking companies for a commitment to achieving net zero by 2050 and, you know, clear interim targets as to how they're going to get there, like by 2025, 2030, you know, 2040, for example, like show us that you have a plan for dealing with climate change. Investors themselves are also increasingly uh, under pressure to publish their own plans on, on how they are lining up with net zero by 2050 or sooner and, and what they are going to do to get there and what targets they are setting as well. So this trend which we're seeing for both investors and for companies is the same. And effectively it is, and it's the same as what we're seeing for governments who are also being asked to do the same thing, whether it's state or federal for that matter. Science tells us we need to get to net zero by 2050 or sooner it, to have a chance of limiting global warming to less than 1.5. That means all of us need to be looking at what targets we're setting to, to help achieve that goal. So whether it's investors or companies or governments, you know, that same trend around supporting net zero and set incredible interim targets to help get there uh, is something that we uh, are seeing this year and we expect to see more and more of uh, in the months and years to come. Now, you mentioned before we, we were talking about orderly and disorderly transitions to zero net zero emissions. The federal government's hand-picked COVID coordination commission has proposed a gas-led re economic recovery, even though that we know that greenhouse emissions from gas are about the same as those for coal and oil. And the head of the advisory board has confirmed that it's recommended that the federal government use taxpayers' funds to underwrite new gas industry infrastructure, whilst concluding that no support is needed for renewable energy. Mm. The Commission's draft report proposes that the government chip in funds to build a gas pipeline from Western Australia to the East Coast and a government-guaranteed floor on gas prices to de-risk the private investment. Do you think that's the best way to support an economic recovery? And what would you advise your fund managers? Yeah, look, I think there are some real apparent contradictions in that position. In that position. You know, Australia will need clear government coordination, funding and support to lead us out of the economic impacts of COVID. We need to do so, however, in a way which also meets the broader priorities that we have as a nation around uh, meeting our goals under the Paris Agreement, but also 
and delivering the kinds of social outcomes that the community is looking for. And particularly during this COVID period, which we have seen to be so important to so many people in terms of you know, looking after people's jobs and social welfare and, and looking after each other as a community while we've been going through COVID. I don't think anybody really wants a process which will deliver a very blinkered approach to economic recovery is, is, is my first point. My second point is that there are clear opportunities in a number of industry uh, activities which are so strongly aligned with achieving our goals under the Paris Agreement. There's clear demand for investment in renewable energy. There's clear demand for investment in more energy efficient property and actually improving the environmental performance of the property sector. There's clear demand for private sector investment in social and affordable housing, which also is um, future proof for the kind of physical effects of climate change that we can see. It doesn't make sense to me that we would be prioritising one set of preferences over another when we actually need investment to be going into all shovel-ready projects which deliver clear employment opportunities as well as wider social and environmental opportunities for the Australian community. I guess lastly as well that you know the, the gas industry is going through some real significant impacts at the moment not just because of COVID and the economic downturn, but also because there is a fundamental structural shift going on in global energy demand for carbon-intensive fossil fuels. This is very unpredictable. This is the very heart of the disorderly transition and the potential financial impacts of it. Do we really think at that point in history where we don't know how that transition is going to play out, that we should be injecting billions of dollars of taxpayer funds into a profoundly uncertain environment to prioritise the development of a very carbon-intensive industry. There may be some opportunities within the industry which deliver better goals on the, in the transition on the way through. We should very carefully consider all of the dimensions of this issue uh, and not go in with our eyes wide shut to the broader decarbonisation trend which will fundamentally restructure all carbon-intensive industries over the next few years that we shouldn't also be prioritising at this time. Where can our listeners find out more about this? I would encourage you to, to sign up to the various um, IGCC communication channels. We put out a lot of materials, but I would also say get in, get in contact with your own fund. Find out where your money is. Uh, find out what, what your money is doing and where it's going. And talk to your local super fund and um, see how you can have an impact in terms of influencing Australia's retirement savings as well. Thanks so much for your time today, Emma. So it's good to talk to you. We've been speaking to Emma Hurd, CEO at Investor Group for Climate Change. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe to help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZD website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.